when I left the job, like I said, I had to earn. I forgot, like, how am I getting a paycheck? I don't want to tap my, you know, my deferred comp or these other accounts. So I'm like, I got to figure out how to earn money and support a family. So I literally, I'm not kidding. I literally had seven different jobs, Paul. Like I, I was teaching at two different colleges. I've been teaching for 20, 25 years. Like I love teaching. So I was teaching at two different colleges. Um, I was doing background investigations. I was working for a consulting company, doing management consulting, all these teaching online, like doing all this stuff. And I was just trying to figure out, I'm like, I'm going to get my PI license. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. And I talked to two different mentors. Um, this is why I always talk about like find mentors. If you don't have one, like seek them out. Two different mentors who had already made the transition successfully. And they both told me the same thing. They said, Charlie, go out on your own. You have the experience, you have the knowledge, you, you know, you're passionate about you're passionate about leadership and you're passionate about this wellness piece. Like create something out of that, create your own consulting company. And I'm like, I don't, I don't know the first thing about that. I don't, I don't know how to do that, but it planted a seed. And that's where I started researching and learning and talking to other people who started their own company. And so chief leadership came about a year later. So 2019, I'm like, all right, I'm gonna hang out my shingle and figure this out. It's very steep learning curve. Hey everybody. Joining me this time is Charlie Solano. Charlie spent 27 years as a police officer. He retired in 2018 as the chief of police of the Tustin Police Department here in California. His retirement not only didn't happen when he wanted it to, it also didn't happen as he had planned it. But I'll let him explain what forced this decision. Charlie's got an interesting journey from a kid growing up in New Jersey having to move to California at the start of his high school years, to almost getting a shot at the Olympic trials. Since retiring, Charlie has started Chief Leadership, a company dedicated to helping leaders and organizations transform their approach to leadership and success. It was through one of his classes that I met Charlie, and what I was impressed by most was his passion for employee wellness. I know you'll enjoy this, so let's get into it. Here's episode 122 with Charlie Solano. All right. So back to where we were. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I grew up in New Jersey in a, a small town called uh, South River, um, kind of in the middle of New Jersey. Kind of a, you know, I always say it's like a, kind of a tough neighborhood because I grew up, what I remember growing up is I was in a lot of fights. I mean, just like, and you know, you know, you and I are around the same age, like when we grew up, like fights were not uncommon, you know, at least where I grew up, it wasn't. Um, I think it still fell under the boys will be boys. Yeah. And people just kind of let it be. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Whereas now, I mean, it's like I have three sons and none of them have ever been in a fight. You know, if they were like, it'd be, it'd be a big deal, like certainly at school for sure. But so that like, I don't know, just growing up in kind of a tough neighborhood. I was robbed twice, you know, growing up and just... Learned a lot from that experience, um, but I loved it. I mean, I love, you know, I, I come from a big Italian American family. So every Sunday we'd go to my grandmother's house and I had a lot of cousins and I spent a lot of time. I, my grandmother would make a big pot of gravy called gravy, not sauce. Right? Uh -oh. So, and uh, let's not go down that, that debate I route. Know, it's a debate. It's a debate. <laughs> but, 
it was it was a good childhood. We didn't have a lot. You know, I wouldn't say we were poor, but you know, it's like my parents provided for us, but you know, we never went out to eat. Like we just, you know, my dad had to work three jobs before he got his you know, his like career job and it was it was tough for a while, but uh it was good. It was a good childhood. I live right across the street from my elementary school. So I can't tell the story that I walked you know, a mile in the snow, you know, it's like it was snowing, but it was right across the street. So uh, that was nice. And it was just, it was good. It, it was good. I, I lived there until I was uh, 15. Mom and dad, longtime New Jerseyans? Born and raised back east. So my, my father was born in Brooklyn um, and my mother was born in Newark. In fact, my mother, I talk a lot about my mother because my mother was, That's good. she was a big influence on my life. But she was born in the projects in Newark, and she was born in the same um, apartment complex where Frankie Avalon was. She, that was her claim to fame. Got it. Because she knew Frankie Avalon <laughs> growing up. But uh, yeah, the, my whole family, like a lot of my family still back there, you know. Um, but yeah, they were born and raised there. Um, my grandmother was born in Italy, and my great-grandparents obviously were from Italy, but they came over in the early 1900s. So your parents are second generation here? Yes. They speak Italian in the household? No. Did, were they raised speaking Italian in their no. household? No, because, you know, the the emphasis was like, you learn English, right? We're in America now, you learn English. So, you know, they would hear Italian. Right. And they could I, kind of understand some of it, usually the bad words. <laughs> but then, you know, it was like, you, you will speak English. So, you know, and I grew up just hearing, you know, I hear my grandmother, or it's, you know, you know, speak a little bit of Italian, but never learned. When she it. was yelling at you. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, well, she was so sweet. She never yelled at me. She, oh, mine oh, yelled at me all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, with your name, like Pantani, like it's, you, you know what it's like. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, the, the, and that's the, the thing. I know both sides of the fence in that. So my dad was first generation. Okay. Actually, technically, no, I'm first generation. My dad came here like you, where you came to California when you were 14 or 15. He came to the States when he was 14 or 15. Okay. But him and my grandmother still spoke Italian to each other, but they didn't speak it to me. It was, and partly because I was bouncing between my mom and my dad and my mom's not Italian. So it's like uh, the struggle there. But I do know friends who, you know, grandparents came over and rule number one, we are now Americans. We don't speak Italian anymore. Mm-hmm. I, I know friends whose family came here and altered the spelling of their last name to be more yes. Americanized. So Me all too. those little things. Me too. They try, you know, it was, it was assimilate. Kind of a shame. you know, you're trying to mm-hmm. assimilate, but it's a shame because you lose some of that. Yes. But you know, it's funny when you said, you know, my, my grandmother yelled at me. It's, it's funny because I grew up in a household, probably similar to you where at least back East Italians, like, they yell all the time. Like, oh, yeah. but like yelling isn't like yelling. It's like, <laughs> it's communicating. Like my mother be like, get over here. You know, my father, you get with my father. And, and I would like, I sometimes fall back to that style. I'm a quiet person normally, but sometimes I'll fall back to that. Like with my wife and kids and like, why are you yelling at me, dad? I'm like, I'm not like, I'm just, just talking. I'm just talking <laughs> to you. Right. So it's, it's funny. My just wife just sent me a joke meme yesterday that said, you learned your inside voice while flying in a helicopter surrounded by chainsaws. She, she'll tell me all the time. She goes, you don't have an inside voice. You think you're whispering, but you're not. Right. Right. Yeah. I get that. Big family. 
brothers, sisters as well? Uh, uh, so I have one brother and one sister. I'm the oldest. Um, so ours was smaller than the cousins family. Right. Like we had a lot, I had a lot of cousins. I can't even tell you how many cousins, but like I had a younger brother and a younger sister. I still, still have a younger brother. <laughs> are they still back East or they, they come out also? No, they're here. Um, but we, well, they would have come out when, cause you were the, they came out when, when we came out. Um, but we've been all over the place after that. Um, but we've all kind of landed here now in California. So you mentioned your dad worked multiple jobs before he got his career job. What was his career job? So he got hired by Mattel toys which was kind of cool, you know, um, being a kid of a, a dad who worked at Mattel because we'd get like the prototype toys and like the stuff that none of the other kids had, you know, some of it worked, some of it didn't work. <laughs> Test this out. Yeah, it was fun, you know, um, but he, so he had an opportunity, like I said, when I was 14, 15, Mattel's headquarters are here in El Segundo, California. So he had a huge opportunity, big promotion, big raise to basically uproot us and move us out to California. You want to talk about a culture shock? Like that was a culture shock. Did you guys settle in El Segundo? No, we settled in San Pedro. Oh, okay. Um, the only reason I say that is because my dad, the same way he worked for American Airlines, transferred out here. Oh. And so my godparents, but typical Italian family, call them aunt and uncle, they lived yep. in El Segundo. Where did we end up? We were living in El Segundo. Oh, you were in El Segundo. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I guess that was, I don't know, a hub or something, but there, there's a huge Italian community in that whole South Bay area, yes. especially San Pedro. San Pedro is an old Italian fishing village, right? So I don't know if that's why we landed there or... So there's a lot of Italians, a lot of Yugoslavians. And if you go back to San Pedro, it's funny. If you go back to this day, it's like you go in a... It's a time warp. Yeah. You go back there and, and it's like you're back in the 80s like when, <laughs> I, when I got there. Um, but it was great. It was a great town. But it was, it was funny because... I started high school in New Jersey. I went to an all boys Catholic high school, St. Joseph's in Metuchen, for the first half of my high school year. And I was, I was oh, like, you had to move mid year. Yes. But here's the worst part. So move mid year, it was a surprise. It was, you know, your parents didn't talk to kids They're like, hey, we're moving. You know, it's like, <laughs> pack your shit up, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Can I cuss? Yeah. Okay. So pack your stuff up and we're, we're moving to California. Where? <laughs> like, that's California's what? 3,000 miles away, but I started the year in high school, moved to San Pedro. Well, in San Pedro, an LA Unified school district, at least where I lived, ninth grade was junior high. So I had to go back to junior high for my second year of ninth grade. So I went from high school back to, I was like, <laughs> I'm taking a step backwards here. It was weird. And how old were your brother and sister at that point? My brother's two years younger. So he'd about 13? He's probably like 13. 12, 13? Yeah. And then my sister's six years younger. Oh, wow. So she was little. Yeah. Looking back on it, how did that, obviously, you're, it, even just having to take that step back and now be with the junior high kids when you were in high school, but other than that, any major hiccups and, and how, I would imagine that for you, just completely uprooting yourself and then trying to replant in a completely new area, especially at that age, it's it's a particularly bad age to do that, you know? And I always, I always promise myself, like I would never do that. And I don't blame my parents at all. Cause it was, it was an opportunity for them to, to better our lives. And it was amazing from that standpoint, but such a difficult time to uproot. And, and we didn't know anybody. Like I didn't have any friends. I didn't know anybody. So I didn't, I got to make friends. I, I talk weird, you know, like I, I made a very conscious effort to lose my accent. 
because now people ask me like, you know, you don't have your accent, but when I go visit back East, like it comes back yeah. and it's because I was, you know, it's like kids making fun of you. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you want some water? You want coffee? You know, like, and so I'm like consciously trying to change the way I talk. And, and it was just, I was a fish out of water. I mean, I didn't even know what a burrito was. Like, I'm like, what it, you know, these kids are like, Hey, you want a burrito? You want a taco? I'm like, I don't know what that is. Where's the pizza? Yeah. Where's the pizza? Right. From your mom's perspective, was she on board with it or did she want to? She was at that point, but then, um, later on when we started moving. So we, we ended up moving all over the world. Um, cause my As dad, your dad just, moved up with kept moving up. It became more and more difficult for my mother. Um, until it got to kind of a breaking point where she, she gave my dad an ultimatum. She's like, we gotta go back to California because go back home because it was too much for her. Cause we lived, we lived in Mexico. You know, we, we lived in Hong Kong. It was, it was just, a, it was a lot. Was you know? all of this during your high school time? So right towards the end of high school, um, my dad got the job in Mexico. And so we moved. I only spent the summer there. Actually a little, little longer than the summer. I left like before the end of the school year. And then my parents, I was fortunate enough to come back for my senior year and stay with a friend. Um, ironically, this friend, he and I have been friends ever since for like 35 plus years. His name is Mike Hamill. And he ended up becoming a police chief. Uh, later in life. And so he, he was like my best friend in high school. He let me stay with him and his mom let me stay with there with them for my senior year, which was nice. But they lived in Mexico for a couple of years. Then they moved to Hong Kong. I spent some time in Hong Kong in between high school and college. And then, but I was pretty much like on my own from 16 on in the sense that I didn't have, I didn't go home to my parents every day, which was somewhat formative for me, I think. Were you a good kid overall? How were you with like academics and stuff like that? Uh, Academics, I always say I'm like, I was a B. I was like, I was a B student, you know, um, I was a B athlete, you know, like I, (laughs) I was above average, but never great. Great. Yeah. I was uh, so like in terms of athletics or academics, I was always B, B plus, you know, but I, I liked it. I played baseball um, for 10 years, you know, from the time from T-ball I love baseball. Like I loved it when I was living back East and playing baseball. I would, I remember this vividly, like when it, when it would rain and it would, you know, rain out the game, I'd be standing at the window, like crying with my baseball mitt, like crying because I, because I couldn't play the baseball game. You mentioned that your dad's from Brooklyn. So my dad was from Brooklyn also. And one of the things that I like to say is as a baseball fan, to me, if you could put me in a time machine, Take me back to New York City in the 50s when you had Brooklyn Dodgers, the Giants, and the Yankees all right there. And my dad's told me stories of, you know, back then, not as many people had TV, so everybody listened to the radio. But just up and down the blocks, you could hear everybody cheering or, you know, booing or whatever it was. That had to be a great time. Yeah, I mean, baseball was big. Like, we didn't have soccer. No. I didn't know what soccer was, really. And But baseball was big. We played stickball. You know, you see like in the movies, like I actually played stickball when I was a kid because, you know, we, you get a broom handle and a rubber ball and you go to the, to the lot and play stickball. Um, but any, any opportunity to try and play baseball, I did it. Um, and I just, I just didn't get, I, I wasn't good enough as I got older to stay competitive. Coming to the end of high school, was there ever a desire to go back home, quote unquote home or back East? 
I for you. Always, I kind of always wanted to go back. Um, we'd go back and visit here and then. And, you know, I, I got homesick a little bit, but you know, you know, this like living in Southern California, I, like once you get used to the weather, once I made friends, once I developed relationships here, I was hooked. And I just, I don't want to go back to those winters. I don't go back to the humid summers where, you know, you don't have air conditioning, you're sweating right. in bed. So even if you have air conditioning, it that. doesn't work. I know. It doesn't matter. I know. I, d- I don't miss that, but of course I miss the family. What was your plan for after high school? You already mentioned college. So did you kind of have a career path in mind? No. <laughs> well, I wanted to be a professional cyclist. So I played baseball when I, when baseball kind of ended for me naturally, um, I'd always been riding my bike as a kid, but somehow on a kind of on a lark, I ended up racing my bike on the velodrome. So track racing. And this was through a friend of a friend and introduced me to it. And it was the track at um, Cal State Dominguez Hills, which is now the Home Depot Center, yeah. whatever it's called. Um, and I fell in love with that. And I was good. Like it, this was where, you know, I was like a B in all this other stuff, like basketball and baseball. But for some reason, I was good at cycling and especially track racing. And so getting towards my senior year, you know, I was getting pretty good. I was racing against, you know, like junior national champions and like really getting into it. And then my coach at the time said, Hey, I think, you know, you can go to the Olympic training center in Colorado Springs because I think you got a lot of potential. And I was like, okay. And then my parents dropped the bomb on me that they're moving to Mexico. It's like, sorry, son, you can't go. You got to come with us. And so I always think back to that moment, like, oh, what? I, I mean, I don't think I would have been an Olympic cyclist, but who knows what path my life would have taken. And this was 87, 88? Yeah, this was right before the, it was right after the 84 Before Olympics. Olympics. Um, and right before the 88 Olympics. I don't remember what the 88 Olympics were, but. I can't remember how we did on the track, but I do remember the Lexi Graywall won the gold in the men's road race. Great track cyclists. And I mean, and I, I probably never would have, would have been this level, but I mean, people, th- these guys would walk around with legs the size of tree trunks. Like they were just like, I want to be like that guy, you know? So I just loved, I loved racing on the track. As weird as it sounds. Being that I also enjoy cycling, the, for people who who have never watched track cycling, the strategy behind it is, oh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, forget the fact that, yeah, there's no brakes, it's fixed gear, that, mm-hmm. but, and the the strategy and then you know you get high up on the wall and then where the the quote track stand came from and just watching the strategy of it it to me is very interesting i'm sure like any other sport if you don't have an interest in it it's like what are they doing it's weird it, you're familiar with track oh yeah you know a lot about track race so yeah it's if you watch a track uh event like race you go this these people are weird like you're slow it's just like a slow race and you're sitting there waiting, doing the track stand, waiting for somebody to go. And then they have a race called, what is it called? I can't remember now. It's called the Madison, um, where you're like whipping the other person. You're like your teammate. You're like grabbing their arm and you're whipping them. And the momentum that you're using is whipping them into a sprint. Weird stuff. See, I've always liked the team pursuit. Team pursuit is awesome. Very difficult race. And 
but there's no whipping involved in that. But just the when you watch them and the way they peel off and go way to the top of the track to get out of everybody's way and then dive da- back down and, and jump in on the tail. And that is just pure speed. I mean, it is just it's, go and, and yeah. it is. And, and you watch it on the split screen on TV and you see, you know, it, it just millimeters. One team is ahead of the other. Mm-hmm. And you're so close to the rider in front of you, which now I kind of freak out about it. Like if I would do that, I'm like, I got no brakes. I got, I'm going to fix gear and I'm like inches away from the tire in front of me. So I always think about going back to the track and just trying it, but I'm, I probably get too scared. I don't know. We're too old now. Things yeah. break easier. Right. right. <laughs> so you missed the opportunity to go to the Olympic training center. You went down to Mexico, but you said you came back to the States to finish the school year. So could you have not stepped back into it a little bit or was it, did, did you just completely flip the switch and walk away from cycling? I still did it. I just didn't get that. I didn't go, I didn't go that extra step. Right. But I still race on the track. I just didn't, cause I didn't have the support of my parents right. there. You know, it's not that they didn't support me. It's just that they weren't there Yeah. and I needed that. And so I, I still, to this day, I still ride my bike. I'm passionate about cycling. There's just something about being out there on the open road and riding. It's just, it's therapy for me. Um, so I still to this day ride it, but I did stick with it. I even took my bike down to Mexico and rode Mexico, which was sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> and in Monterrey, which is, uh, it's very hot there and you know, they're not used to cyclists. Um, so it was a little sketchy riding there, but I did it. I could keep going down this rabbit hole and, and I love talking cycling. I've got buddies who still work at bike shops and you come up from, from famous cycling pedigree. It, it's in my DNA. Yes, it, it, it literally is in my DNA and on not only from the competitor side, but on my grandmother's side, they made bicycles up until uh, Mino made bicycles. I want to say until the fifties or sixties. Wow. So it literally is in my DNA. I'm, I'm, and you're an I are of the same age of the only TV coverage you got for the Tour de France was the one week on Wide World of, or the once a week on Wide World of Sports. You got a little bit of coverage. Just a little clip. Yep. yep. But I mean, I, I soaked it up and, and my dad loved cycling and it was just something that I was raised with. And so it became very normal. And to this day, come July, the tour is going to be on the t- TV. In July. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, my wife jokes about it, but, you know, she gets that, that I enjoy it. But she'll ask me, she's like, did who you want to win, win today? It's like, baby, it's just, it's yeah. so much bigger than, so that. Much bigger than that. Yeah. But where I was going to go with this is. I would just the one little caveat they tried with the tour of California and it just didn't grab, it didn't grab the attention and it, I would like to see it hopefully maybe try to come back, but I just don't know if, if it's because I don't want to say all of the United States, but California, it's such a, it's such a niche sport. I don't know if it can support it. It's, it's like soccer, you know, it's soccer is so huge in the rest of the world. It's humongous. Cycling is huge in the rest of the world, especially in Europe. Mm-hmm. If you win a stage of the Tour de France, you know this. You win a stage of the Tour de France in Europe, you're never buying a meal again. No. You're never paying for a drink again. You're a, a hero in your hometown. Like they, they put posters of you. up. It's just different here. I, it's like here it's football, basketball, baseball. I don't know why cycling is just not. And we have great American cyclists, but it's just not. I don't know. It won't, it won't take hold. I don't know why. 
Again, you, I think you hit the nail on the head when you mentioned soccer. Look at their, how they're trying to grow soccer in this country, and it is, it's still struggling. I mean, it's growing, but it's its nowhere near the base, baseball, basketball, and football. Right. And it will never get there, probably. Right. So where'd you end up going to college? So I went to UC Irvine. Um, so I, I, I did well enough in school to you know, have decent grades. Uh, and then I applied at UC Irvine because my best buddy, Mike Hamill, who I mentioned before, he got in UC Irvine and like, we want to go to college together. And I got denied. I got turned down. And this is one of my first life lessons from my mother. She said, cause I, I told her, oh, I got denied from UC Irvine. You know, I, I got to go to another school, but I really want, she goes, well, you just going to accept that? I'm like, I'm like, what do you mean, ma? She goes, well, write him a letter, like challenge it. Tell him about all the other stuff that you didn't get to tell him in the application. I'm like, people do that? She goes, what do you have to lose? And so I did. I wrote a letter and I told him all this other stuff I was doing. I told him about how I lived out of the country in two different countries and and I learned this language and and sure enough, they let me in. They accepted me. That was like one of the first, well, I learned a lot from my mother, but that was one of those, it's a, one of those things that I remember is like, don't just accept, you know, what's presented in front of you. Like you... My mother always told me you can create your own path. You know, if you work hard enough, if you put your mind to it, you can do a lot of things that, you know, people don't necessarily think you can do. Um, so I, I got into UC Irvine and went there for three years. Now, when you started there, were your parents still in Mexico or had they moved to Hong Kong at this point? They moved to Hong Kong, somewhere in that. How long were they in Hong Kong? Seven years. Did you get to visit often? Mm-hmm. How'd you Oftentimes. like Hong Kong? Very interesting. Fascinating place. Um, I liked it. Um, yeah, I mean, again, totally different world, different culture. What's cycling like there? <laughs> cycling, other, other than very, very utilitarian. I did ride there too. Um, very dangerous. Not, it's not a big sport there. Um, but there it was like so crowded. There's so much, there's so much going on. You know, you're just like overwhelmed. It's like stimulus. You know, but I learned a lot. I didn't learn the language there like I learned in Mexico. Uh, but I probably didn't spend enough time there. But my sister went to school there. She was there for, for seven years. She ended up um, graduating high school there? Yeah. Yeah, there was an American school there. That You know, the because, you know, those American corporations would bring their families over. And, right. Yeah. But it was your mom that kind of pushed your dad to come back to the States? Yeah, she had had enough. You know, it was a, a lot of moving and a lot of uprooting in the family and after I think it was like seven or eight years she's like and my dad wasn't and you know my dad he wanted to do what's right for the family but Mattel's like we don't have a spot for you back at headquarters so if you want to leave you can leave the company and so that was a lesson for me too it's like after 22 years of service you know they're like see you later here's your severance goodbye you know and he had to start over find something new how old was he at that point they were young when they had me. They were 20 when they had me. So probably early 40s. Yeah, he was still young. What did you end up going on to do after that? Doing different things, different corporate jobs. Um, he ended up, they ended up in Texas, in San Antonio. He worked for a, like a soda distributing company or something. Because he was, he was good with supply chain and, you know, uh, process efficiency, that kind of thing, how to, how to make a plant run smoother. 
And so he did that for a while and then that didn't work out. He ended up working in a grocery store of all things in a warehouse. Um, one of the biggest grocery stores in Texas called HEB. He was there for several years. He and my mom worked there. What was their attitude towards going? And I always say this back home, but going back East to finish out their life. My mother probably always wanted to do that, but my dad was like, once he made the, the cut, it was done. He never really talked about, my dad had a rough uh, childhood. He had a rough go. He, he lost his father when he was very young. I think he was 12 when his father died and he didn't, he never really had uh, a male role model in his life. So, and he got into trouble in high school, he dropped out of high school, went to art school for a while and just kind of like, you know, had to find his way. So he didn't really, he never really missed that. Like once we left to California, he was like, oh, I'm on to the next thing. But my mother always had those roots there. The reason why I ask that, cause I'm, I'm relating a lot of your stories to experiences that I had growing up. And when my dad came to California, working with American Airlines, he never wanted to go back from a work environment. He's like, I don't want to work in the snow. I'm good working out here in California. Let it rain once or twice a year, you know, kind of deal. Did he work outside? Did he work? Yeah, he fueled airplanes. Oh, wow. And, but for him, back East was always the best when it came to people, when it came to food. Everything that he thought was good was was back east just the weather would it was the weather was like you mentioned the cold in the winter and the humidity in the summer was enough to say i'm never going back yeah i mean you, it's what they say here in california you pay the weather tax for all the weirdness and all the it's there's nothing there's there's to me there's no place better i've been all over and it's just you can't and there's no it. there's no traffic and congestion here at all no no it's fine <laughs> So you're at UC Irvine, you, yeah. you, you took your mom's advice and kind of sent the secondary letter. Yeah, yeah. What were you studying? So I started as a pre-med and that lasted about, oh. Half a semester? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so until I took organic chemistry and I said, this is not for me. What, were, I, were you thinking doctor? Yeah, I wanted to be a doctor. Um, but I think I wanted to be a doctor because like my mother would be proud of me if I became a doctor, you know, it's, it wasn't like I had this passion to be like, I want to be a doctor or as a little kid, no one in the family, even distant family or, uh, no, I medical. Had, my uncle was a dentist, you know, but I didn't really have doctors in the family or in the, anybody in the medical profession other than that. It was just, well, I got to get a good job that I could support a family. Like before this, like I said, I, my mind was like, I'm going to be a professional cyclist. You know, or I'm going to be what, what there was no thought of like, what's my career going to be, you know? So, and so after that, I had to like switch gears and I found criminal justice and it was a couple of friends were in criminal justice and they're like, Oh, these classes are great. You know, they're, they're a lot easier than what you're in. I think you'll love them. And I switched over to them and I, I did love them. I love those classes. I really enjoyed criminal procedure and constitutional law and, you know, criminal law. And I just like, I just like, I don't know. It was like a, it clicked for me. Were you thinking law enforcement or potentially lawyer? No, lawyer. I, I was like, I want to be a prosecutor. Like I switched my role. Okay. Now I'm going to be a DA. I'm going to be a prosecutor. And cause I really liked the, the legal part of it, you know, the, the constitutional law and that stuff. So I'm like, okay, I'll, after college, I'll go to law school and I'll be a lawyer. 
And that didn't happen. That did not happen. So after three years of school, I'll never forget this. So, uh, you know, my dad, my, my parents were living overseas. Um, my dad's making good money because, you know, they pay a lot of money for people to move overseas. However, he didn't have a good tax person. <laughs> so when you live overseas and, and there's a lot of taxes you got to pay because of the, you know, the feds are going to get their money one way or the other. So I'm only laughing because I'm thinking of every Italian in taxes. Right. Italian <laughs> taxes, right? So, so um, I'll never forget this. He calls me and leaves a message saying, I need to talk to you about something. And I'll never forget this. I was at a payphone because we had you know, payphones, right? On campus, right near the registration building. And I call my dad on the payphone. I said, what's going on? And he goes, I hate to tell you this, but I got this huge tax bill. I didn't realize how much we got to pay in taxes. I can't pay for your last year of school. And that was my reaction. I'm like, um, okay, dad, you know, I work at a yogurt shop. <laughs> like I can't for like, you know, and that right around that same time, I got a job at the, a part-time job at the UCI police department as a community service officer. So a civilian position doing like traffic control. Oh, it's kind of cool. I got to meet some of the, the cops and kind of learn a little bit about law. My first introduction to law enforcement, public safety. I'm like, dad, I can't make enough to pay for school. He's like, I'll, I'll do the best I can, but I want you to finish school. I've, I've invested three years and I'm like, okay, I'll try and figure it out. And so right around that time, there was a job fair on campus. And you know how like sometimes police departments go to college campuses. So this was one of those public safety job fairs. So I'm like, all right, let me, let me take a look. And I go to these different police departments. Well, Tustin PD, Tustin's, you know, a, a police department in Orange County, they were there and I ended up talking to the, the recruiting officer there. And she's like talking up the police department and she has me fill out an interest card. And I'm like, Hey, I'm just looking for like a civilian job. You just help me pay for school. And she's like, okay, no problem. Because you're still, even though you're, you've got the CSO position, you're still focused on potentially becoming a lawyer. Right. So I fill this interest card. It's this like in May, right? July 1st, I'm in the Orange County Sheriff's Academy. Oh, wow. As a police officer. And it was like, it was a blur. Like, I don't even know how this happened, but, you know, they, they were hurting for bodies. And they're like, we need police officers. Yeah, you can do this civilian job, but you know, we think you can be a police officer. She she was from back east. See, it's like <laughs> the connection, right? So she's from New York. So and I told her my story and how I lived over here, my parents on. She's like, I think you can you can do this. This is before pre-academies, not pre-academies. Like now, you know, they do a lot of a really good job of preparing people. I just found myself day one, July first, you know whatever year that was, 1991, uh, going into the police guy, 20 years old. By the way, I, I have the chief's interview. I'll never forget this too. So I, I, I go through the process, very fast background. I get into the chief's uh, office for the chief's interview. The chief at the time, his name was uh, Doug Franks. He's since passed away. He was this big, imposing figure of a man. Like he's a bodybuilder, just big muscle-bound guy, like big mustache, right? Just intimidating. He came from Fargo, North Dakota. He was a chief there. Just kind of a hardcore guy. He looks at me and he's like looking at my file. He looks at me and he's like, how old are you kid? Which you can't even ask an interview, right? Right. I go, uh, I'm 20, sir. He goes, 
what the hell are you doing in my office? Do you understand you're planning to be a police officer? You got no business being a cop at 20 years old. And I don't even know what to say, right? He's like looking at my file and, and I said, well, you know, I'm not your average 20 year old. You know, I have this life experience. I traveled all over the world. I've kind of been on my own since 16. I'm just, I'm doing everything I can, right? He looks at me and he goes, well, here's the thing. Uh, the personnel officer, you know, she's got a soft spot for you. She thinks you can make it. I'm betting you can't, but I'll give you a shot. I think the Academy is going to wash you out, but I'm going to put you in there anyway. I'm Thanks like, for the pep talk, Thank Chief. you, sir. <laughs> like, it was like, what kind of Chief's interview is this, right? <laughs> like, he literally did not believe I could make it. So I started the Academy with three other people from Tustin. One was um, a Marine Corps drill sergeant. Uh, two other, the two other people like were older, like 26, 27, you know, had some life experience from job experience. All three of them dropped out. I was the only one that graduated. And I mean, barely graduated. I barely made it through the academy. Because of the academics or just, just academics and just like, I was 20, you know, and I'm like, some of the stuff I thought was stupid, like, you know, doing the notebooks and like, I'm like, why am I doing this? You know, I loved a lot of it, but then some of it I didn't, uh, but I barely got through. I think I graduated with 70%. Like you barely passed, you know, and I was like last in the class, uh, but I got through it. And I think part of it was what the chief said to me. Cause that like, don't my, tell me I can't do something. Exactly. And for my whole life, I have found motivation through that. Like when somebody tells me I can't do something, I'm like, okay, now I want to do it. Like that's rocket fuel for me. And I've carried that through the rest of my life. And I can think of other examples where it's like, you can't do that. And I'm like, okay, watch me. How was the conversation? Tell the mom and dad you were going to be a cop. Uh, not good with mom, but she, she was happy in the sense that before that, um, I was this close to joining the Marine Corps because this is right before desert storm. Right. And Marine Corps recruiters were pushing hard. I'm like, that sounds good. Because I remember, I didn't have a career path. And I'm like, why not? Why not the military? You know, and I was like, oh, I can do that. And my mother's like, no. And I was young for where I was in, in terms of school. Like, I was still 17 when the recruiters were on me and I needed my parents' signature. My mother's like, over my dead body. So she told me, right, you're not doing it. So it was kind of like a better alternative. And I don't think they really understood law enforcement. There's no law enforcement in my family, or at least I didn't know at the time. I found out later there was, which is an interesting story. But I think they're like, okay, yeah, be a cop. And I told them, I go, look, I'm just going to do this for like enough time to get through law school because I'm going to be a lawyer. That was my plan. I'll be a cop for four or five years, get me through law school, and then I'll follow my dream of being a prosecutor. Now, had you been able to finish out uh, you see Irvine before you started the Academy? No. So you had to go back and finish that last go year? back and finish later. Took me a long time to finish. <laughs> yeah, it took me a long You and every other cop. Right, you know, because life gets in the way. That's And it's a, it's a common story. Well, and it was it was the era before online learning. Yep. You had to go in person still. Yep. And so, and then all of a sudden you get into, you get into it and you got shift work and, and your shift changes and all of a sudden you're, you know, wait a minute, I can't make that class on... Tuesday afternoon or whatever it is. And just, there are a lot of things that, that get in the way. Oh, yeah. And then I got married young and I had kids young. And so like all that stuff's happening and it's hard to go back to school. So yeah, it took me a while. When did the dream go away of law school? 
as soon as I got out on the job as a cop, because I fell in love. I fell in love with that job. I loved being a, a patrol officer. I loved, I think that what I loved about it was the investigative aspect of it. It's like, I want to try and figure out what this guy's doing. You know, you stop a car, you know, you know, he's lying to you, you know, and he's got priors for this or priors for that. And I'm like, he's up to something. Like, I got to figure out what he's doing. Like that part of the job, I just loved. Or like making a case or, you know, getting fingerprints, you know, you know, or doing CSI and getting fingerprints. Cause back then, you know, we did CSI and like making a case off fingerprint was like, it was like adrenaline to me. Like, I love that. So I fell in love with the job and I kn- and then the dream of being an attorney was gone. It's just, it was, I never had any regrets there. And you ultimately did your entire career at Tustin. Yeah. Was there ever a point you considered leaving? No. Um, 27 years, wonderful career. Uh, did a lot of fun assignments. You know, I worked narcotics. I worked county task force. I worked gangs for a long time. Just had a lot of fun. And, and then working my way up through the ranks, that's when things got less fun, <laughs> as you know. Um, uh, but no, I never once thought about leaving because I had some friends that left, went to the DA's office, you know, which, you know, they had a great career too, but I never, I just, I love that community. I love that department. And I felt they gave me a shot when, you know, a lot of people wouldn't have given me a shot being that young. Uh, so I felt a little obligation to them. And it worked out. It really did. When did you turn the corner? You you mentioned promoting and we're going to get to how far you got, but was the idea to promote something you wanted to do early on or did it come later into your career? It it happened early, early on in the career, but not because I wanted to. Um, it was one of those things like, Hey, you know, you need to do this or Hey, you need to be a training officer. Or, hey, you know, the Sergeant test is coming up. I was way too young to promote to sergeant. I think I was 28 and it was a struggle. Like it took me two years uh, to, to make that transition mentally. And I had a Lieutenant, she was tough on me. I'm thankful for her, but um, she's like, Charlie, you're not getting it. Like you're not one of the guys anymore. You're a supervisor. You have a responsibility to the department. You know, you need to, you need to hold people accountable. And like, she was just on me you know, and sent me these classes and like, but I'm so thankful for that. Uh, But it was a rough transition into supervision. The, does the desire to keep promoting up come right away? Cause obviously you talked about the struggle and I could see where with that struggle, you get to a point where you're comfortable as a sergeant. You're like, I'm going to stay here. Or was it immediately? All right, I got this. I'm, I want to keep going as far as promoting. No, I want to stay a sergeant. Because everyone, you've heard this before, like everyone says the best job in the police department is a sergeant, mm-hmm. first line supervisor. And so I believe that and I, I loved it. I loved being a patrol sergeant. I loved being a sergeant of a special unit. Um, one of my best assignments ever was being sergeant in the gang unit. And I was like, I had no intention of moving forward. And because you, know, you see like what the lieutenants, you know, lieutenants the next step in the career. And I'm like, ah, you know, they're admin guys. They're not out in the field anymore. And uh, I don't want that. I'm having fun. But what changed it for me was when we had a chief from the outside come in. So we had a new chief come in, which was kind of unusual for our department. That had never happened before, but just timing wise, it had to happen. 
So we had a chief come in from another agency. His name's Scott Jordan. Brilliant guy, right? He came from a larger agency and he really took our department into the 21st century. Like he just, we were kind of stuck in a time warp. Mm-hmm. And he's like, hey, there's so many more things we can do as an organization. And he reinvented the lieutenant position. So from from a basic watch commander, which was a traditional, you know, you sit at the watch commander's desk, you answer the phone, read reports. He said, our lieutenants can do more than that. Our sergeants can do that. I want lieutenants to be area commanders. I want lieutenants to be responsible for an area or a division and kind of like a mini chief of police. And so that was appealing to me. And so because of that, because of that change, um, I said, you know what? Let me, let me give this a shot. So I was a sergeant for six years. And then because of that change and the new chief coming in, that's when I tested for lieutenant. When did the desire to actually say, all right, I'm going to go for chief. Like uh, that's my ultimate goal. Come never. <laughs> uh, that's, and that's, well, I'm weird, glad that you never made it well, there then because you didn't want it. It's a weird thing to say, uh, because I became a chief, but it's, it was, um, I, I love being a captain. I love being second in command. Again, that was still my chief, Scott Jordan. And it was, I learned so much under him, but he was grooming me for chief. Right. He, he had been in law enforcement for a long time. He was like over 30 years already. And he's like, I've got to build, you know, a succession plan. And he put a lot of, he invested a lot of time and resource in me. And he sent me to a class called role of the police chief. I don't know if you've been in that. Mm-hmm. training. So it's this class, you know, it's a, a week long class, whatever it is. And it's a great, it's a great class. Um, but they talk about, they have these chiefs come in and talk about the role of being a police chief and, and they talk about labor issues and they talk about union issues. They talk about personnel issues. They talk about how chiefs are at will. They talk about scared the <laughs> crap out of me. Okay. Scared the crap out of me. I'm still young. Like I'm this, at this time I'm like 40 and I'm like, I'm not doing that. And so I get back to, to work and chief asked me, goes, Hey Charlie, how would you think a role of the chief? And I go, I said, chief, whatever you intended by sending him at that school, it backfired because even more than ever, I don't want your job. And the other thing was I saw how the job was impacting him mm-hmm. and I saw how it was impacting his personal life and the thing, and he was, he's a classic workaholic, right? He'd be in at six in the morning and he'd be there till 11 o'clock at night, come in the next morning at six in the morning. Wow. Didn't matter. And I'm like, no work-life balance there. No. And he'll, he'll write him and I'm still friends with him to say, he'd admit that. Um, but I said, chief, I don't, I don't want that for me. You know, I have, I have an amazing wife, I have five kids, you know, I want to spend time with them. I want to go on vacation. I want to, and plus I see what you deal with and the politics and all that stuff. And cause I was close enough to it and I go, I don't want that either. And he goes, look, you're, you know, you're talented enough. You can do this job. What you have that I don't have is you care about the people a lot. You know, you're a people person. Like he was more black and white admin focused. It's not that he didn't care about the people, but he, that just wasn't a strong point, you know? Um, and he goes, you have that, but you need a little ice water in your veins. And I go, chief, I don't want ice water in my veins. He goes, but in order to survive as chief, you need a little ice water in your veins. And he was right. Fast forward to 
you know, he leaves before he was, he was in a contract. He left early, you know, for personal reasons. And now I'm in this position where are you going to take, are you going to put in for it or not? And it was me and another captain. And initially I said, no, I had the mayor, you know, sit down with me and go, Charlie, you're, you know, you're our guy. Really? I really think you should put in for this. And I'm like, Mr. Mayor, um, I'm not interested for all these reasons. How old were you at this point? 42. So you still got a little, not a long ways, but a decent amount of time I mean, before you can retire. Yeah. And as a chief, you know, you're, you're on probation every day, right? City council doesn't like you. That's right. You get a, you, if you can't, you got to count to three, right? And so, um, I knew that. And again, I have this young family, 42 years old. And what changed for me is I had a conversation with one of my lieutenants and he's a very convincing guy, right? And he had been in, he'd been in the department for, you know, almost 30 years himself. He was born and raised in Tustin. And he makes this plea to me. He's like, Charlie, you owe it to this department to, you know, you have all this support. You know, I've talked to all the officers, you know, you were a cop's cop. Like we want you to be our chief and we'll help you. You know, we'll, we'll be there for you. I know, you know, it's, it's, you know, you're nervous about it. And that, that convinced me, you know, having that conversation, I kind of felt this sense of obligation, but I never, ever really wanted to be a chief. I'm thankful now looking back that I had that experience as a chief, but it was also that same job that, that forced me to re-career sooner than I wanted to. So had I stayed at a number two, I probably would have still, I'd probably still be there, or at least I would have stayed longer um, just because of that specific job of the police chief. So that's what I want to get into is talk about the experience that caused you to basically re-career as you, but forced your transition early. Yeah. So without going to a long story, um, I had, there were, there were several omens, things that happened in my life. And I don't believe in coincidences. I don't believe in luck. I believe everything happens for a reason. And there were several things that happened in a very short period of time. I lost a friend from another agency. Uh, he was 47 years old. He died of a heart attack. Um, suddenly, no no hint, no clue, fit person, right? Then I had a good friend who at Tustin PD, who was my training officer, did a full 30-year career, retires, nine months later, drops dead of a heart attack. You know, and I had to hand the flag to, you know, he was, he was still a reserve officer, hand the flag to his wife and kids. That had an impact on me, right? Well, all while this is going on, we implement a wellness program at the department. And the first phase of the wellness program is a heart scan. We get a $50,000 donation through our foundation to do heart scans, free heart scans for all employees. It was wonderful. So I get this heart scan done and I'm thinking it's not gonna be a problem. You know, I ride my bike all the time. I'm doing all these endurance events. Like it's not gonna be a problem. Well, it was a problem. I was actually diagnosed with coronary artery disease and it wasn't good. It was, I was for my age at the time I was 47 for my age, I was in the 90th percentile um, for that, the level of disease in my heart. Meaning that if you lined up a hundred men in the room, my age, 89 of them had a healthier heart than me. So that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me because I really felt like if I stayed for those last two years to get to 50, 
I was going to be dead. I wasn't going to make it. And I'm, I'm convinced to this day, as I sit in front of you, Paul, I wouldn't be sitting in front of you because that job was killing me. And it, and w- what I learned after this experience was because I learned about the stress response. I learned about chronic stress. I learned what it does to the body and I was doing all the wrong things. I mean, I was not managing stress and you can go back years in my career to where not talking about trauma, you know, um, self-medicating with alcohol, right? Doing all these things that I shouldn't have been doing that kind of led up to that point that, that really manifested in, in a damaged heart. And so I'm like, I'm not sticking around. And it was the hardest decision I ever had to make. Best decision I ever made. Prior to that heart scan, looking back on yourself and doing a self-evaluation, was it obvious that you were starting to, I'll use the word deteriorate, or were you not aware of it? I was consciously aware of it. I was not consciously aware of it. And if you're an outsider looking in and you're looking at what I'm doing in my life, you'd have no idea. And again, I saw these other people, same thing. You would have no idea. These people that are, you know, and they're even getting tests done. They're getting stress treadmill tests done and EKGs and they're coming back positive. Get, you don't know. Until you get the right test done, until you're really digging in and finding out what's going on in your heart, you really don't know. And so from the outsider looking in, you look at what I'm doing and you're like, his heart's fine. It's not you know, as strong as an ox. Um, but that's just not necessarily the case with everybody. I have a friend of mine that I do jujitsu with. He's a cop also. He and his family went on vacation somewhere up in the mountains. Might have been Mammoth, Big Bear, something like that. Hey, babe, I'm just struggling to breathe. I'm struggling to breathe. And so he went to the doctor and he ended up having a blockage. And this guy's physically fit, does jujitsu, all this stuff. And the I think he referred to it as the widowmaker disease. But basically, the doctor said, you literally were one foot pursuit away from potentially dying. Yeah. You know, and it just, like you said, until you have that moment that either by happenstance, like, hey, I'm having difficulty breathing or... A, a donor says, hey, go get your heart scanned. Here's here's money to go get your heart scanned. And then you find out about something. Yeah. You, you, I highly recommend that. Like when I talk to people now about wellness, like spend the 250 bucks to get the CT scan of your heart because you could pass all these other tests and you could be into jujitsu or you can be riding your bike or you can be running marathons and really have no idea. And, and the Widowmaker is where I have my damage. So it's the left anterior descending artery the LED, which is called the Widowmaker. And that's where most of my calcification is the damage. So is that a genetic? So part of it's genetic. Um, but it, when you look at the research, um, genetic predisposition only accounts for 25% of the manifestation of the disease. So what that means is three out of four things are within your control. The rest of it is stress and how you manage stress and lifestyle choices. So what you choose to eat, are you getting enough sleep? Are you exercising? Those are really the controllables. Um, but yes, I mean, I'm sure I didn't realize at the time, but I had genetic predisposition. There was no one in my family that had heart disease, but later my dad experienced heart disease. So it's like, didn't realize at the time, but it was, it was, I had some genetic predisposition. And does the level of stress that is in your life now in your, in your case, you were the chief of police especially, you know, we're now talking uh, the last couple of years that the stress level definitely increases for any chief of police. Right. But 
is that something where if you were if somebody is in a less stressful position there's less impact on the heart not necessarily because it's really about chronic stress and chronic stress is something we all experience so that's all the stuff that's operating in the background you know am i going to be able to pay my bills this month uh, i have a sick i have an aging parent uh, my kid's not listening to me or my kid's struggling in school. Like all that stuff is considered chronic stress that everybody deals with. And what's happening in the body is, you know, that fight or flight response is, is basically happening all the time and you don't realize it because they say stress is a silent killer. It is uh, because it's going on behind the scenes and your adrenal glands are releasing cortisol into your system constantly when you're under chronic stress and you're not managing it well. So the other thing I recommend is in addition to a heart scan is get your cortisol level checked. And a lot of people don't know what their cortisol levels are, but you can test it in, with a blood test. You're probably your primary doctor won't do it, but you gotta, again, like my mother said, don't take that as an answer, like be your own advocate and find out what that is. But what happens is cortisol is a natural stress hormone, but too much of it is a toxin. So 70% of the chronic stress or the chronic disease in this country is caused by excess cortisol in the system. So what you have to do is release the excess cortisol. And if you're not monitoring that, you know, it's just built in bills and it manifests in heart disease, depression, anxiety, certain types of cancers, right? So one of the things I say is, and I, I believe this to be true, is you don't know how stressed you are until you're not stressed. Think about that. You don't know how stressed you are until you're not stressed. And I ask people all the time, have you ever taken like a week long vacation or two weeks and just unplugged, like put the phone down and like, how do you feel after a few days? You start to feel like, like you can breathe, like you're not breathing shallow. You're actually taking deeper breaths. Your, your respiratory rate has slowed. Your resting heart rate drops a little bit. You're smiling more. You're feeling more that's how you're supposed to feel. But in, in our jobs, in our profession, in a lot of professions, you're just operating at this level and it becomes normalized. So you're operating at a high stress level and it just becomes normal. And that cortisol is just flowing through your system and doing damage. And there's so many different ways to talk, think about it. And, and in my head, I'm so you brought up something of, your doctor may not request a test. Your insurance potentially may not cover a test, but you have to put the money out of pocket. And I immediately started thinking about everything that's related to law enforcement. Sometimes there's training that you need that your department can't afford, but you need to better yourself and invest in yourself. Your health, don't simply rely on, well, my insurance only says I can have this, so that's, you know, it's it's that, that thing of going above and beyond. Right. Then when you talked about how how we deal with stress, I've enjoyed the promotional process. I've enjoyed moving up because the responsibilities are different, but your impact on an organization is different and how you can help the people that you serve. That's a different kind of stress because when you're a patrol officer, when you're off duty, there's really not an email that's going to come that, that's important to you. Right. All of a sudden, now you're a captain, you're a chief. Everything going on in your organization is of a is your responsibility, so right. to speak. So, 
you can decompress. You can go on vacation for two weeks, but can you really go on vacation? Not really. I mean, it's really hard. And especially as a chief, you know, you're, if you're doing the job correctly, you are responsible for everything, right? You're accountable for everything that happens. You can't throw your people under the bus. You can't blame them, right? If something bad happens, that's your responsibility as a chief. And so that burden is heavy. And I'm, I'm telling you, I can feel it. You know, and I'm responsible for the safety of 80,000 people. That's what I'm feeling every day. And my biggest fear is, you know, one of my officers gets hurt or, you know, God forbid killed, you know, line of duty. Like that's something that it just keeps you up at night, you know, and I can't tell you how many times I woke up at midnight, one o'clock in the morning, I can't get back to sleep because my mind is just, it's a hundred miles an hour. Well, and you had a unique experience that a lot of people don't. You started your career with the Rodney King riots, in essence. It, they were kicking off probably right when you were starting as an officer. Yeah, I started in late 1991, and it was in uh, Rodney King was 92. So that was the start of your career. And then you end your career, the George Floyd riots, and all of the subsequent unrest that came with it. But now you went from being at the bottom of the organization when you started to the top of the organization when you finished. And everything that's occurring in your city is falling on you. Yeah. Yeah. And and I had the unique experience, let's say, of, you know, a brand new police chief. In my first 90 days, I had three officer-involved shootings. Now, I don't know how familiar you are with Tustin, but that's unheard of. Like, we would have an officer-involved shooting once every few years. I had three in my first three months. And I got the mayor asking me questions. I got the city manager going, what you, what's going on over there? You got a bunch of trigger happy cops. Like, and I'm like, I, I have no idea what's going on. Like they're just doing their job. You know, I don't know if it was just perfect storm or, you know, and then you got these personnel issues. It was just, it was really like baptism by fire. Um, but what I learned out of that experience, again, I'm going back to my friend, Mike Hamill. So he, you know, he called me at the time when this was going on, he was a deputy chief at, at Irvine PD. And I'm telling him about this and I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing wrong here? And he goes, Charlie, you're looking at this all wrong. Look at these challenges like opportunities, opportunities to learn, opportunities to grow. What other brand new police chief gets, you know, this level of experience in that shorter period of time and every single shooting's different and every, you're dealing with the DA's office, you're dealing with, and that like helped reframe my mind and how I approach these challenges. And it did help. It was still hard, but it really helped me deal with those things. But it was nonstop. From that point on, it was just like one thing after another. After the heart skin, was it immediate that you said, I'm walking away from this career? Or how long did that process take to make that decision? And actually, I want to preface that with what was the immediate change in your life that you made right after that heart skin? So immediately, I didn't change anything. So this is interesting you asked that question. So I get the heart scan, I go home, I tell my wife because I tell her everything and she says something very interesting to me. She goes, well, babe, I support you whatever you decide. And I go, what does that mean? <laughs> and she's like, well, you told me that the cardiologist said that one of the major contributing factors to heart disease is stress and I know how stressed you are as the chief. Like if you want to leave, I support you. I go, babe, I wasn't thinking about retiring or leave. leaving. Like, what, You know, and you know this, like I, I do endurance events like races, marathons, triathlons. When you start a race, 
if you don't cross that finish line at the end of the race, twist your ankle, you get sick, your bike breaks. At the end, on the results page the next day, next to your name, are three little letters. DNF. I go, did not finish. I go, babe, I've never had a DNF in a race. You think I'm a DNF on my career? It ain't happening. I can't retire for another two years. It'll be fine. I'll make some minor changes. We'll go on that family vacation we've been talking about for five years. Right? You know, those kind of things. And she's like, okay, I support you. Well, fast forward about, it's probably about four or five months after that. And I, and this is kind of a, just a weird experience. I come home from work at a reasonable time. It was like, I didn't have a city council meeting or, you know, usually I'm there late. Come home, work. My boys were young at the time. Whenever I got a chance to be home, I loved tucking them into bed. It was like just a privilege like to be able to tuck them into bed. And so that night I'm tucking my middle son, Anthony, into bed. And he was 12 at the time. And Anthony's a unique kid. Like he's quiet, but he's very intuitive. It's kind of dark. He's just he's an interesting kid, right? I bend down and give him a hug and a kiss. I go, good night, buddy. And he says to me, he goes, dad, when are you going to retire? And it threw me off because I don't tell my kids about my heart scan. I don't tell them about the stress of the job. As far as they're concerned, dad's, dad's a superhero. Super, exactly. It's just like you're a superhero to your, like, so for him to ask me that question was really strange. And I said, I don't know, buddy. Why do you ask? And what he said next changed the course and direction of my life. He said, dad, I just think you would feel better. And like my heart sank into my stomach, tears welled up in my eyes. I'm not a crier. I walk out of that room just broken, you know, because he could see it on my face. I didn't have to tell him anything. He could feel it coming from me. That's another omen. That was another, you know, the, like the last one for me. And I went in and told my wife, tears in my eyes. And she goes, babe, I support you, whatever you decide. And that's when I made the very difficult decision to leave. Fortunately, I was able to defer my retirement. So I, I now retired, which is wonderful. But that was a tough time, you know, going from getting a paycheck every two years for 27 years to you don't have a paycheck at all. And just trying to figure that out, you know, which is what you talk about, right? This whole transition, that was a rough time for me. But it was the best decision I made because I was able to really pour into learning about heart disease, learning about stress, reading everything I get my hands on about nutrition, sleep, mindfulness, exercise to really build, you know, a foundation for me to turn my health around. And I was able to do that, fortunately. So yeah, it was an interesting time. You bring up a good point though, because you mentioned previously that you had to bury a retired officer who only lasted nine months after retirement. Yeah. You also talk about the fact that, you know, for many of us, there's that, that magical date on the calendar when we can retire and go from getting our paycheck to our retirement check. And unfortunately, far too many of us, we look at that date on the calendar as our race. I don't want a DNF before that. But we, we overlook or we disregard the impact that staying to that finish line is having on us personally, emotionally, our families, whatever. And so for me, one of the things that I've learned in doing this podcast is if you have those omens, yeah. if you have those markers in your life that are telling you 
this isn't the right path, then get off of it. It's okay to get off of it. And you're not a DNF. You're not a quitter if you pull out early. Because for me, I don't want to put 30 years into a job and last three months afterwards. I always joke with people. My first goal is I want to get as many years in retirement as I put into it. Amen. That's my that's my first. Because for me, that's my finish line because at least then I broke even. And, and that's just in my goofy way. Yeah. But I'm very fortunate coming to the end of my career and, and nothing medical-wise has significantly right. happened. Right. Knock on wood. Yes. But I've also had the opportunity to talk to people who like yourself, they, they got presented with something they weren't expecting and they had to make that hard decision. But the biggest thing is, like your wife said, it's okay to walk away because your health to your family, to your wife, to your kids is far more important than your organization. I am not putting down any organization, but at the end of the day, the day you walk out the door, they'll wave, but you're already forgotten. hundred percent, hundred percent. And I, and when I gave my notice to the city manager, I was worried. I was nervous, you know, because you know, no city manager wants to replace the police chief, right? But that's exactly what he told me. He goes, Charlie, you could dedicate 30 years of blood, sweat, and tears to this city. And the minute you leave, they're moving on. They're not like crying tears, you know, because, and they want you, like, this. the machine will keep moving. And that was really helpful for me. But to your point, I go back to what my mother taught me, like, don't accept like this arbitrary date, right? This retirement date, because that's what PERS tells you you need to go, right? Don't accept what's presentative. Do what's best for you and do what's best for your family. And now as I reflect back, like I don't have a DNF. I don't have, I could have a DNF on my life, right? But instead by making that decision and transforming myself uh, health wise and then finding the next chapter, was the best thing I could have done rather than, and, but I see this, I see it too. I see it. People in our profession, they're hanging on, they're hanging and they're hanging on even longer. It's like they have an arbitrary date and then they get close and they get anxious. And we could talk about why that is, but it's like, Oh, you know, maybe we're going to get another contract. Maybe, uh, uh, you know, I can add a few more hundred dollars to my retirement check, you know, if it, and they're just, they're experiencing that retirement anxiety because they don't know what they're going to do. I think that, the biggest thing is, is the people that hold on too long, and I'm going to put a huge blanket statement over this, they don't have anything else in their life. Right. There's nothing else that is to them appealing, exciting, or interesting enough to take them away from this job. And it, we've, we've heard, heard that story many times. I don't want to be that guy who passes away six months, a year after I retire. That just, to me, that, that. I'm going to be a little politically incorrect. I think that's a failure to yourself and to your family. I agree. And it's, you only have to look at the stats to, to confirm that you've seen the stats on average, people who have a public safety career live five to seven years after they retire. That's bullshit. Like we should be living 20, 25, 30 years, especially after what we've been through. And you're hundred percent right about the identity. So there was a captain that, you know, I, I worked for, that I noticed when he got close to retirement, he really struggled. He was like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Like being a cop is who I am. 
And I said, Captain, uh, you know, I respect you for that. I admire you. But being a police officer, being the, it's not all of who I am. It's an impar- important part of me. It's a part of my identity, but it's not all of me. But you see this happen time and time again where it's their entire identity is wrapped up in the career. And that's a recipe for disaster. And you're right. Those are the people that struggle the most. And, and this, that's why I love what you're doing because you've got to th- start thinking about transitioning before you put in your retirement papers. Like you've got to think about it a few years. Like start planning, start finding out what is your next purpose going to be so that you can have that seamless transition. You can appreciate the career that you had. It's wonderful. Now what's your next purpose? Because we work in a noble profession. When you take away that purpose, that nobility, and people think, I'm going to sit on the beach and drink Coronas. It doesn't work. How long is that going to last for? Right? Or I'm going to go to the river and just go out on the boat every day. Okay, well, that's going to last for about a month. And then what? And those are the people that I see struggling the most. Because it's just, it's, it's unrealistic. The ones who make that work are few and far between. Yeah. I do have a couple friends that they are retired and... They're living their life on social media in the sense that they're posting all the places that they're going and they appear to be enjoying it, but it's, they are the anomaly. They, yeah. they are such the minority to what most people experience. And the one thing that I would add to what you're saying, and I've learned this also through my career, but in obviously doing this podcast, you need to be thinking about what you're going to do tomorrow. Unfortunately, every single day of your career, because unfortunately this job is one of those ones and just like with the veterans that I have on this podcast, they're careers that literally can end tomorrow for a variety of reasons. And so you've got to be at least just thinking about like, what might I do if I don't have this tomorrow? Yeah. I always say, don't just have a plan, have multiple plans, right? And have backup plans and have contingency plans. And I'm a big fan of stoic philosophy. I don't know if you're a fan of stoic philosophy, but you know, the stoics, you know, their, their mindset is like, this could all end tomorrow. Not, not only just could this job end, but my whole world could be taken away from me. I could die tomorrow. I could lose my loved ones tomorrow. And the idea is if you're operating under that premise that everything could be taken away in a moment's notice, number one, you appreciate what you have, but you're also better equipped to deal with life when life throws you a curveball because life is going to punch you in the face. And that's, I've learned over the course of my life that it's, it's going to happen. And so I adopt that philosophy of like, I got to be thinking about ahead. What's ahead. What's my next purpose? Cause that purpose is going to keep you alive. I mean, it's, it's just what I believe. And you and I came into law enforcement and came up through law enforcement through the same, I'll call it the generation. And things are obviously different. You know, when we first started a, Move on to the next call. Nobody wants to hear about your feelings. You know, if you have an, you know, like your FTO, if you're going to have an opinion, I'll tell you what it, what it is kind of deal. Fast forward to today. And I'll say the last five, five years or so, the, the way that millennials are bemoaned and put down. But I think one of the things that I appreciate about millennials is, as you said previously, they don't make this their identity. That's right. It's a job and they'll be the first to say, Hey, this isn't working for me today. Yeah. I've got seven years into it, but guess what? I could start over. What was your experience at the top of an organization and seeing that? Were were you seeing that across the board? 
Yeah, and now the millennials are they're like older now. Yeah, they're like they're like yeah. the old people now. Like, um, they're they're the salty ones, and they're they're the ones saying now this new generation doesn't. <laughs> right? It's so funny, but I saw that, uh, and I saw frustration within the ranks of you know this new generation they don't get it, which and every new generation every, says. I heard it. You heard it from the older generation. And my my point is, yes, we want them to be to have to be dedicated, and we want them to love the job and love the profession. But they kind of got it figured out. Like the fact that they want to take their vacation time and not bank it till you have a thousand hours for some un, you know arbitrary reason is actually a healthy thing. The fact that they don't want to work overtime after overtime after overtime, or go to the bar after work like we did, you know, every day, like. That's actually a good thing, you know, and they're probably better off for it. It's just finding that balance of, you know, Hey, we still need that dedication. Right. You're still not, you're not just accountable to yourself. You're accountable to your team. You're accountable to your organization. So how do you find that balance? But I saw the fresh, I see it now in my, in what I do now and the training classes, I hear it all the time. Like these new generations, they don't get it. You know, it's <laughs> like, it's like they kind of get it, you know, but we just got to help them. We got to help them. Um, both honor the tradition of this is this is the tricky part right how can we honor the tradition of law enforcement of policing while still innovating and progressing as you know as a profession how can we make sure wellness is a priority while at the same time making sure we're accountable to each other and and dedicated and putting in the work and that's the tricky part of of leadership and the tricky part about you know where we are culturally and you know in society so before your heart skin, were you con- starting to think about your transition out? Yeah, a little bit, you know, a little bit, but not, I didn't really have a set plan. You know, I, so I'm, I'm into like marathons and triathlons and I, would, I told my, my wife, I go, when the kids are, are grown and out of the house, like let's get in the RV and I want to go to different States and just do triathlons in different States and like just travel kind of like your friends, right? Like. And like that's your wife's like, do. that sounds really exciting to me. <laughs> you know, she's so, she's so supportive. She, she's, she would love it because she, she's like, she's my support crew and she would love that. But, um, having done triathlons though, before one of the things I tell people is it's not a spectator sport because you only get to see your friend or your loved one right. a couple seconds as they blow by. Yeah. Especially the longer ones. It's, it's, it's probably harder on the spectators than it yeah. is the, the participants, but She's a trooper. She's amazing. But that was kind of like my idea. And we would travel and, and we're, we're a very close family. And like I said, I have five children and now I have three grandchildren. So it's like, okay, we're, we're going to spend time with the grandkids. We're going to go to their games. And like, that's, that was kind of the plan in terms of work. I knew that I wasn't going to stop working. I just didn't know what that would look like. Um, at that time before the heart issue. So you transitioned out, you have your company today, chief leadership. Mm-hmm. Talk to me about how that developed and where, where did it, where did the impetus come from? What was your plan for it? Um, it just, it grew organically naturally. I didn't have a plan for it. It's when I left the job, like I said, I had to earn. I forgot like, how am I getting a paycheck? I don't want to tap my, you know, my deferred comp or these other accounts. So I'm like, I gotta figure out how to earn money and support a family. So I literally, I'm not kidding. I literally had seven different jobs, Paul. Like I, I was teaching at two different colleges. I've been teaching for 20, 25 years. Like I love teaching. So I was teaching at two different colleges. 
Um, I was doing background investigations. I was working for a consulting company, doing management consulting, all these t- teaching online, like doing all this stuff. And I was just trying to figure out, I'm like, I'm going to get my PI license. I got to figure out what I'm going to do. And I talked to two different mentors. Um, this is why I always talk about like find mentors. If you don't have one, like seek them out. Two different mentors who had already made the transition successfully. And they both told me the same thing. They said, Charlie, go out on your own. You have the experience, you have the knowledge, you, you know, you're passionate about you're passionate about leadership and you're passionate about this wellness piece. Like create something out of that. Create your own consulting company. And I'm like, I don't I don't know the first thing about that. I don't I don't know how to do that. But it planted a seed. And that's where I started researching and learning and talking to other people who started their own company. And so chief leadership came about a year later. So 2019, I'm like, all right, I'm going to hang out my shingle and figure this out. It's very steep learning curve, trying to figure out the business world, insurance and licenses and how do I bill people and invoices and I don't want to ask for money. And like just all these issues that um, I learned a lot about. Uh, Everything that after 30 years of government work, you know nothing about. I know nothing about it. I know nothing. Yeah, I was really a fish out of water. Um, but I learned from some great people. I found some great resources. And slowly but surely, now it's been four years. And I started by myself. Now I have a team of like 13. And we're all over the Western United States doing leadership training, coaching, and team building. And absolutely love it. I spend more hours now working than I ever did as police chief but it's just different. It's, it's, I'm very passionate about it. I love getting up every morning and, and doing the work and I'm still learning of course, but it's fun. And we met through one of your classes. And one of the things that immediately stuck with me was your drive and how much you emphasize the wellness aspect of it. Was that important to you from the get go? From the get go. Uh, when I started the company, I said, I have to have a mission. And my mission developed very quickly. My mission is very simple. It's to help leaders survive and thrive in a challenging career. In particular, public safety leaders, I know how challenging it is. So I I want people in this profession to write their own ticket. I don't want people to end up like I did, where it's like now your hand's being forced and you can't leave the career on your own terms. And there's things you can do, little things you can do to, to ensure that. And so I knew right away that that's my mission. And so everything I do, whether it's, you know, a team building workshop or training or coaching, it all is done through the lens of self-care and wellness because we just don't talk about it enough. What kind of response are you seeing from most organizations? Are they accepting of it or is there, are there still enough old salts, I'll say in the big organizations that are resistant to it? That's a great question. Um, It's funny because the people that reach out to me get it. And the old school, uh, you know, kind of regressive organizations that like, oh, we don't buy that wellness stuff, they don't reach out. So I don't really have an opportunity to, to work with them, um, which is fine for me because I want to work with organizations that get it. And I want to work with chiefs of police and sheriffs, you know, and city managers who understand that and appreciate it. So they're the ones that reach out uh, for the business. So I don't really have occasion with those other Departments. I, I hope and pray that they will come on board. And I'm seeing more and more, you know, agencies developing wellness programs, 
talking about wellness, investing in their people, which is wonderful. But there's more. There's a lot more work to be done. And you're actually developing a transition class, correct? Yes. So uh, created an eight-hour course um, called Writing Your Next Chapter, um, Life After P- uh, Public Safety Career. And it's a lot of what, a lot of what you do. And it's, it's getting people to think and be intentional about what their next purpose is. And I, I, I keep coming back to this purpose because, so I'm a big fan of Viktor Frankl. Did you read Man's Search for Meaning? Sure read I haven't that. read the book, but I've heard of You've the heard book and book, I know right? the concepts of it. You understand the concept of it, but the concept, you know, from his experience is you gotta have a purpose and meaning. That's how he survived you know, being in the concentration camps for four years, just ungodly conditions and watching his friends die around him. Having that meaning and purpose is what got him through that. And, and then as part of my study, learning about the blue zones, you familiar with the blue zones? So the blue zones are places in the world where you have people that live the longest. So there's like seven or eight blue zones in different parts of the world where you have the highest percentage of centenarians. These are people that live to 100 and beyond. You have like super centenarians, 110. One of those places is Okinawa, Japan. And when you study Okinawa, Japan, when you look at the research, these researchers go out and try and figure out, why are these people living so long? Like the average, I think the average mortality uh, age in Okinawa is like 85. It's like way above the average. And so these researchers go out and try and figure out what, what are you guys doing? What's the secret? And there's several themes like, you know, daily movement, right? Having a sense of community, the diet, the nutrition, like, you know, it's mostly plant-based. But the key for me, and, and this is what I learned from Okinawa, is always having a purpose. In, in Okinawan language, in Japanese, it's called ikigai. So their goal is to find their ikigai. Your ikigai is what gets you up in the morning. It's what gets you up in the morning. It's what you're, you're, you're fired up about, what you're excited about. In the Okinawan language, there is no translation for retirement. They don't even know what that means. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. Right? So they don't, they don't believe in retiring. They believe in constantly finding that next purpose, whatever that is, finding that ikigai and working towards that, which to me, that's what leads to, to long life. So... I want to impart that upon anyone that's willing to listen to me, you know, and it's like, Hey, when you're five years out from ending your public safety career, let's start thinking about it. Let's start looking at your personal values, things that matter to you. And let's try and find whatever that next purpose is going to be. It might be volunteering. It doesn't have to be paid work. It could be volunteering. It could be involved in your church. It could be, it could be traveling where, you know, you're traveling, but you're learning new things. You're learning a new language. You're learning that that constant growth mindset, trying to learn. That could be your purpose, right? Or going back to school and getting to whatever it is, you got to have something. And so I want to help people develop that so that they're ready when the time comes. So they don't have that anxiety. One of the things that I'm fortunate in doing this podcast and the people that I've gotten to talk to are the number of people who have come to their transition and they found their purpose by giving back. Yeah. And so for many of us, we get wrapped up in the monetary, like what am I going to make monetarily? But those that have found the ability to find their purpose in giving back to others, not for a monetary component, but what it gives back to you 
personally, spiritually. And those are some of the people that I've had really impactful conversations with because you see how dedicated, and for most of them, they're giving back to either the first responder or the veteran community, but they get so much enjoyment from giving back that that becomes their new mission, their new purpose. And it is a much stronger mission than when they were doing the job previously. You can't even put a, a price on it. You can't even put a value on it. That is so true. And I have found that to be true in my experience. And I, I try to adopt an abundance mindset. You know, you have the scarcity mindset and the abundance mindset. The scarcity mindset is the, the belief that there's only so many pieces of the pie to go around and I got to get mine and I got to hoard information. I, and that's damaging and it's not fulfilling in the long run. The abundance mindset is, you know what? There's more than enough to go around. I can give my, myself, I can give, invest my time, my resources, and I'll get that back. And I have found that to be true so many times. It's counterintuitive, but I do a lot of free work. Like I do a lot of free uh, talks on wellness, especially to public safety. And I get so much out of that. If one person comes up to me after the talk and says, you, that really resonated with me. I'm having an issue with my heart or I'm having this health issue. Thank you so much for, you know, giving me these tips. Like that is, I can't even put a value on that. But what I found is the money will come. Like you don't have to be trying to get that. Like it will come just naturally. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to be focused on that. If you're just being of service to others, good things happen. Good things happen for you and good things happen to you. And I have this post-it note. I'm, I'm corny, Paul. You know, I'm weird with the leadership stuff. I have this post-it note on my computer at home. My kids make fun of me. But it says, life happens for you. Because I think so many people have this idea that life happens to you. Like, why is this happening to me? Why is it happening? What I learned from Viktor Frankl, what I learned from Stoic philosophy is suffering is part of the human existence. What good can come out of suffering? Like, why is this happening? At the time, it's difficult. But why is this happening? Go back to me being a police chief and having those officer-involved shootings. This is happening for me. Okay, now I'm learning. Now I'm able to share that with a new, a new chief that comes in. I can share that experience. How is this difficult time happening for me? And I have that on a post-it note because I want to constantly remind myself. Because it's easy to fall into, the, oh God, why is this happening again? What, you know, it's a good reminder. I'll go back to myself. I didn't have the picture-perfect career. I started, like you, I started out in a smaller organization. For a lot of people who, who do law enforcement outside of California, they really don't understand that Southern California is this this hodgepodge of a bunch of little organizations. Where you talk about being on the East Coast, you know, the entire city is, you know, an organization that's 10,000 strong. You work for a small organization, it's real easy to kind of get into that mindset of, they don't like me or it's right. it's their fault. But I think this can happen in any organization. But where I'm going with this is going down that path and, and having that point in my career where I wasn't getting the assignments that I wanted. Yeah. And I started pointing. It's their fault. It's the organization's fault. Until I had that moment where you stop, you look in the mirror and you go, what am I not doing? Oh, wait a minute. That guy that got that position... I didn't realize it, but he put himself through three additional training classes that I didn't feel was worth me paying out of my pocket for. And it all depends on your perspective. It's 
however you want to look at it, it's going to impact you. And as long as you hold on to this, it's the organization's fault, you're never going to succeed. Yeah. And it's the same way, I think, when you come to your transition. If you expect simply because of what you used to be, you're going to get something today, that may open the door. Granted, it's going to potentially open the door, but you've got to step through and present yourself, not what you used to be, to go forward. Yeah, and you have to have humility in that process. It takes humility to get to that point because a lot of people rest on their resume. Oh, well, look, I just did all this stuff, so I should get... That's not how it works. But my, my question to you is, when you came to that realization, did you have a role model that kind of pulled you aside and said, Hey, Paul, uh, or was this just like you came to it on your own? No, I'm uh, far from that, uh, advanced. No, I was very fortunate. I had one of my former training officers had promoted up to Sergeant and was now in charge of the training officer program. Saw where I was heading and knew that all I needed is probably somebody just to reach out a hand and pulled me aside yeah. and said, Hey, I think you would be a good training officer. And, and just being given that opportunity was enough for me to go, wait a minute. And, and now that I had somebody sitting next to me, that it was my responsibility to help them become a new good police officer. It really forced me to start doing a lot of self introspection and how can I be the best for them? And, and that was the turning point in my career. Yeah. I think a lot of people go through that experience. I mean, I went through a similar experience with like five to seven years on the job. That's, I always call that the danger time because I see it happen. I saw it happen as I went up through the ranks because you're starting to feel confident and you feel like, you know, you got your, you know, your shit together and it's like those people, they don't get it. And if you don't have that role model or that mentor to pull you aside, cause I had those people go, Hey, wake up. Right. It's, it's not all about you. Right. It's not about you. Um, and if you're, you're fighting the institution versus embracing the institution, it can make like difficult, you know, for you. But when you look at the stats, what's interesting is most officers, when, when they're terminated for misconduct, it's right around that time, 27, 28 years old, five to seven years on the job. That is a critical time in a police officer's career because they're at a crossroads and hopefully they have a coach, a mentor that can like you had, like I had to go, Hey, wake up kid. Put your head out of your ass. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's such an important time. One of the things that lately, and it's weird how something so basic, but when you hear it, you're like, Oh, how many officers have we worked with who will know everything about their gym workout, the protein they're taking, the, the number of calories they're taking. But if you ask them, what are you feeding your brain? They won't know. Right. And life is about that constant evolution of feeding your brain. It's, it's your circle impacts your brain. And what I mean by that is who are the voices that are in your ear and in your head? And more importantly is you may outgrow a circle. And so you're, if you're always striving to improve yourself, you may then become the top of that food chain. What you need to do is do that uncomfortable transition and find that next better group so that you're constantly being fed by people who are trying to improve themselves as opposed to like we've all experienced in organizations. You get into those 
clicks yep. who just want to blame the organization. And it's real easy to get into that little bubble of feeling comfortable. Like, yep, it's all their fault. And you just kind of give up on yourself. Yeah. It's crabs in a bucket, right? They're, they're trying to pull you down. And I forgot who said it. I think it was Jim Rohn said, you're the average of the five people you hang around with most. And it's so true, right? And so you have to constantly be intentional about who am I associating with? Am I associating with people that are making me better as a person who are challenging me, who are pushing me out of my comfort zone? Or am I hanging around with those people that are trying to grab me and pull me back down and, and pull me into their pity party and complain? And that takes, that's hard. Like you said, that's, that takes courage because you know, it's, it's a brotherhood. It's a sisterhood mm-hmm. in our job. And like, Hey, we came up together. We worked patrol together. And like, you know, now you're too big for, you know, I've lost friends. I'm sure you've lost friends. And it's just kind of the nature of, uh, but you got to do what's best for you and, and continue that learning and growth process. Cause there are people that will, they'll want you to stay right with them. And I've had those conversations as I've promoted up and, and you talk about the friendship aspect. Oh, so-and-so got it. Cause just cause they're friends with so-and-so or your friends. And one of the things I've told every one of my bosses, like if I'm your friend, that's even more of a motivation for me to not do stupid shit, not put you as my boss in an awkward position as opposed to the opposite of, well, I'll just take advantage of it. He's my friend. So he or she's my friend. They'll let me get away with a, B or C. So your true friends, you can stay friends with people as you promote up. If you truly are friends with them, that should be a greater motivation to do the best either for them in the sense, if they're a subordinate or for them, if they are your boss. Yeah. And I mean, I have a a good friend to this day who, you know, we started as officers together and our families, you know, vacation together and our kids grew up together. He stayed an officer his entire career as I'm going up through the ranks. I know for him, it was like, I don't want to mess up because I don't want to to that, to be a reflection on Charlie, you know, or make, or, or put Charlie in a difficult position because he and I've had those conversations. Right. And he's like, I, I don't ever want to be in that situation. And we've stayed friends that whole time, but different trajectories, right? Different trajectories. And I, but I've lost those friends that they don't, they don't understand it. It's like, well, why are you, you know, why are you doing that? Why are you making that? Why didn't I get that specialty position? Well, I'm picking the best person for the job. Some people can deal with it and some people can't. Going back to hanging your own shingle. Yeah. What advice, a couple pieces of advice for somebody who's thinking about starting their own business that if what you know now you would have done or not done when you were starting out? Um, good, good question. So one, talk to people who have done it. You know, it's one thing to read books or, you know, follow people on YouTube and I do all that stuff, but actually talking to people who are doing it or have done it to me was the the best, um, education. And then what I learned with, and what I'm glad that I've stuck with, with the business is I'm really narrowing my focus and I've had pressure to like add additional services. Well, why don't you do this? Why don't you do executive recruiting? Why don't you do strategic planning? And I'm like, nope, 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 nope. The reason is I want to be the best at what we do. We do three things. We do leadership training, coaching, and team building. That's it. Again, all through the lens of self-care and wellness. I want to kind of go deep into that and be strong experts in that rather than jack of all trades. 
master of none. And I see, I see this mistake being made by some consulting companies where like, we'll do it all. You're just chasing the dollar, right? Yeah. Just, we, we do it all. Anything you need. And some are good at it, but some are like, you're kind of like mediocre at a bunch of stuff rather than it's like if I had to have heart surgery and a particular valve in my heart had to be replaced and there's one surgeon in the world who he does a thousand of these surgeries every year. That's all he does. That's who I want to do my surgery. Not the general surgeon who maybe does that every once in a while. So I've, I've really held true to that focusing on, you know, my ideal customer and just focusing the work and trying to continue to develop and, and be the best that we can at that. The other thing is let it happen organically. You know, it's, it's easy to fall into the trap of like, Oh, we can scale, we can scale, we can get bigger, we can get bigger. Yes, you can, but I don't want to end up in the same position I was where now I'm stressed out. I've got all this work. I don't have enough people to do the work or I'm traveling all the time. Like, you know, and my wife helps keep me in check on that. She's like, Hey, you don't want to live out of a suitcase. <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs> you know, and I travel enough, but it's, so I want, I want the growth to happen organically. I eventually want us to be a national company because I want to have that impact, but I want it to happen naturally. And if, and I'm like mentally prepared if one day it's like, you know what, this is just not for me anymore. I just close the doors and I'll say, what's next? So I ha I'm not emotionally over invested in, in the business or what we're, what we're doing. I love what we're doing. Uh, but at some point it's, it's like always beginning with the end in mind, you know, say in business, you should, you should figure out like what, what you're going to do with that business before you even start it. Are you going to sell it? Are you going to pass it on? You're going to, so I, I have that always in the back of my mind. And for you, the, you mentioned the coaching, the, your company does leadership coaching in the sense of you mentor those who are interested in promoting up. Is that what I'm understanding by coaching? Yeah. yeah. So departments will hire us to, you know, like a, a, a chief, a city manager will hire us to coach a brand new chief or a chief will hire us to coach newly promoted sergeants, lieutenants, captains, civilian managers, uh, dispatch supervisors. And it's just helping them from a mentoring standpoint, like, deal with that first, that transition and that first year, um, but also helping people level up to like maybe people that are experienced in position, but they need to get ready. Like sometimes I'll get called say, I got two deputy chiefs. They're great. I'm leaving in a couple years. I need you to get them both ready to take my spot so that they're both prepared. Things like that. And here's the thing about coaching is it's a foreign concept in, in, in public government, in the private sector, they've been coaching people for decades, right? Executive coaching, leadership coaching, it's commonplace. You get a promotion, here's your coach. But in our world, it's like, figure it out, right? I mean, so when you got promoted, you get a commander like, and figure it out, Paul. Yep, same thing with me. It would have been so nice as I'm going up to the ranks, I get lieutenant, hey, here's a coach. Can help you, guide you in your first year as lieutenant. That would've been nice. So it's still kind of a foreign concept, but more and more agencies are kind of figuring it out and I'm enjoying it. It's exciting. It's an, it's a, it's an exciting market. I've been very fortunate in my career as I've promoted up. I've had good mentors. Like you said, though, it's not organized. It's, it's informal, informal 
but I do believe that many organizations, mine included, are moving towards formal mentorship programs. Yeah. But yeah, the the idea of promoting up and then what do I do? Go figure it out. It's it's very common. And the worst thing you can do in that situation if you're thrown into that is be too prideful to ask questions. Be too prideful to go, I don't know what I'm doing. I need help. And I think that's where a lot of people get into trouble. Yeah, ego gets in the way, you know, pride. But it's also fear. Mm-hmm. It's like, I'm afraid that if I ask these questions, if I appear like I don't know what I'm doing, then maybe I shouldn't have been promoted. You know, maybe people will look at me like I shouldn't be in this spot. And that comes from a place of fear. And so having a coach, having a mentor can help, you know, again, help you set aside your ego. You know, it's okay. You don't have all the answers. You know, I don't have all the answers as a coach or mentor. I'm still learning. So it's just, it's a good resource to have. And also, you know, we do 360 evaluations and just providing that feedback for someone can, can reveal blind spots in their performance and their leadership. I know it happened. It happened for me going through a 360. I'm like, wow, I thought I was really good at this. I'm not good at this. Like, Cause my people that are on my team are telling me I'm not good at this. And that's really powerful. Did you mention you're writing a book too? Yeah. Uh, it's up here. Right. So yeah, basically about what we talked about, you know, just about my telling my story and, and how to develop that next purpose, whatever that is. Um, but really making health and wellness a focus early on in your career, specifically for public safety, because we just don't deal with it well. When you see suicides, and I know people get triggered by suicides, but it's something we need to talk about. And, and even when we were at the workshop, look what happened at LA County, right? Four suicides in 24 hours. Like it's still a big problem and we need to talk about it. And so you know, I want to provide people with resources and tools that they can use to address their mental, physical, and emotional health early on in their career. So again, they can write their own ticket. And so that's some form or fashion. That's what the book is going to look like when I have time. to it. <laughs> <laughs> Well, to wrap it up, what's the website where people can find you? Um, www.chiefleadership.com. Uh, and you can, we have training courses and stuff all about coaching and um, yeah, that's where you can find all the information and we have YouTube channel and I put out videos every once in a while, uh, just like health and wellness tips or leadership tips. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time. I wish you the best of luck and I'll have you back when you write the book. Great. Can I say, can I just say thank you for what you do? Because um, this is really important. Like just, I don't see anybody else doing this. And so your podcast is really, it's making an impact and um, I appreciate what you're doing. So I want to thank you for that. I appreciate the compliment. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Great. Thank you. I appreciate you watching, but before you go, if you like the video, please hit that subscribe button. Also any comments are appreciated. Thank you.